I'm Pike Milinowski, and you're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. Who am I? What's the meaning of being human? South Korean poet and novelist Han Kang confronts these questions with her country's violent history. Since when I was a child, it was very overwhelming to look at all the things human beings have committed throughout the history and throughout the world. Hong Kong grew up in Guangzhou, a city of one and a half million people in the south of the Korean peninsula. A few months after she and her family moved to the capital of Seoul, Guangzhou experienced a student uprising against the martial law government in which hundreds of students were massacred and killed. You know, humanity has such broad spectrum I've always wanted to know the meaning. In this intimate interview, Hong Kong speaks about how literature helps to pierce her distrust in human beings, and about her sixth novel, The Human Acts, in which the 12-day massacre is the violent center. So, when I was a child, uh, my father was a very young novelist. It meant we were poor and we had to move a lot and we didn't have much furniture, but we had a lot of books. It was kind of a private library and it is like being protected by books and surrounded by books. And for me, books were like a creature, you know, expanding because the number of the books were increasing, you know, week by week, month by month. So it was like living with them. And I attended five primary schools, which could be quite much for a child, but I don't remember I felt hurt, maybe because I was protected by all the books and I spent all month reading books in the afternoon until I make friends, made friends. So it is a very precious memory and I remember one day I I was reading a book and I couldn't see the lines. I couldn't see anything and what happened and I realized it has become dark. So I had to turn on the light and I just kept reading on. So I discovered uh, books just as pure joy and afterwards I became a teenager and you know I was confronted by very typical teenagers' questions like who am I, what I can do in this world, and why everyone has to die, why human pains exist, or what are human beings, and what is the meaning of being human. And then I wanted to search these questions and 
I kind of revisited all the books in a new way and I felt I was, what can I say, accompanying the writer's questioning and everything was new at the time and at a certain point I wanted to become a writer. I remember the day when I decided to myself to become a writer. It was when I was 14. I just wanted to write my questions and you know at the age writers are kind of collective and they are they were surrounding me together searching and questioning and sometimes they felt helpless clueless i just wanted to be with them because i was helpless and clueless mm. at the time i just started to write some lines maybe maybe they were similar to some poem I'm not sure. I just wrote some sentences or phrases, even sometimes just words. And, and I started write journal. Until now I write journal, not every day, but sometimes. So that was all. I didn't start to write fiction at the time. I started uh, to write fiction since when I was 19 and it started with a very short short story and then I moved to a, a little longer story and I published some short stories at literary magazines and I worked as an editor and a journalist for three years after I graduated from university and I really wanted to write my first novel so I quit and it took three years to finish my first novel and from then I have written novels, short stories and poems as well. So, it's not like I decide to write poems, they just come. And even when I write fiction, poems just come into the fiction. It's like an intrusion. So, yeah, language is something I have to struggle with, maybe till the end. And there are questions I have had for a long time. You know, since when I was a child, it was very overwhelming to look at human beings, you know, all the things human beings have committed throughout the history and throughout the world and at the same time you can see such dignified human beings 
all around the world. So it was like impossible riddle for me. And the fact I belong to this human race, and you know, when we are confronted by the horror of humanity, we have to question what is the meaning that we are human. You know, humanity has such broad spectrum. I always wanted to know the meaning. Yeah, so it is like unending inner struggle because I want to embrace this world and embrace life but certainly there are points we cannot and it's like walking back and forth between these two riddles it's like all my life but I I have this medium my language and with this I have to move forward in 1980 there was uh, an uprising against martial law declared by new military dictatorship in South Korean Peninsula and and the states killed the people who were against them and there happened a civilian autonomy and it lasted for 10 days and finally the troops came back to the city and they killed again so we can call it a massacre and a rising and absolute community I see Gwangju the name of the city not as a specific city for me it's like a fundamental name or a fundamental noun for humanity which has these two extremes from sublimity to the horror or to the basement so I can see everywhere Gwangju whenever we are confronted by these two extremes so I wanted to write about that Gwangju which is coming back to us over and over again we don't know how many people were killed officially it is 200 and some more but there are many people who are missing until now so we don't know yet but is it thousands you think? I think so but, but I cannot say because we don't know the truth I was born in Gwangju and my family 
left Gwangju in 1980. It was January. It was so cold, so it was a very cold day. So I remember even the date. It was the 26th of January, and we just left the city because my father had quit his teaching job to become a full-time writer, and he said, now I don't have a regular job, so why don't we live in the capital? It was a very spontaneous decision, and we moved, and after four months, the massacre occurred in Gwangju. Till then, Gwangju was just a small city with some universities, quiet, peaceful. Suddenly, the connotation of the city has become really different, and nobody imagined that massacre. And we can call it an uprising, and we can call it absolute community of solidarity. And it was like long period of sense of guilt for all my family. We didn't leave the place intentionally, but it was like that. So it was the feeling that some people were hurt instead of us. And it was inside myself for a long time, even though I didn't plan to write about it, never. Just I grew up with this memory which I experienced indirectly, and it stayed in my nightmares. And suddenly, after I finished my fifth novel, I wanted to capture the reason why it is so difficult for me to embrace this word or life. And I had to dig into myself deeper and deeper, and then finally realized that I had to penetrate this doubt about human beings through writing. So that was why I started write Human Acts. And during the process of collecting all the materials, I was even more shaken and torn because I had to witness all the atrocities I read a very big book of testimony of 900 people who survived, who were injured, were bereaved. And I, it, it was like collecting all the fragments all together because I didn't want to write a cold book with uh, evident you know, incidents. So more I read more, I lost my trust, and at 
at some point I realized that I was dealing with some people who were so dignified in front of human violence and there were people who donated their blood to each other and I still remember the photo of the people who were queuing in front of the hospitals. They were so many and there was a high school girl who was killed after she donated her blood and on her way back home she was shot. So, and I wanted to remember this, this side of humanity and this side of Gwangju and I started to write the book and all I wanted to do during the process of writing this book was to experience together, to feel together and to lend my sensation and body and experience for the killed and possibly to reach something I found on the other side of this massacre, possibly light, human dignity or can I say, everything sounds quite cliche, but it was so real for me. So that was what I wanted to do with this book. It was the process of transformation myself. I started with human atrocity, but it was like moving on and on to these dignified people. I don't like the word victim. It means some kind of defeat. But I don't think they were defeated. They refused to be defeated. That's why they were killed. So after that I wrote the white book which is not published in Denmark yet. And in the book I wanted to write about something nothing can harm or destroy and it's inside ourselves. So you can say I have moved forward and I myself was transformed during the process and now I'm thinking of love. Mm. It's like suddenly I, I found the meaning of love and even if we feel pain, it, it is the proof of our love. Love is still cliche, sounds cliche, but it is real as well. So I always move on 
with the strength of my writing, hopefully I still move. Definitely Human Acts is the book which has transformed myself the most. My family doesn't talk about literature. I mean, we just talk about family things, you know. I interviewed my parents. I didn't interview the survivors or people who were injured and or the bereaved family because I didn't want to open their wound again. I felt I didn't have any right to do that. So I just interviewed people around me, my friends or elder friends, colleagues, and my parents as well. So I had to talk to them. I was writing this book about Gwangju. And I remember my father told me, it must be hard on you, but please finish it. I remember these words. I hope people who read this book could feel the same way I did. Not only my family, everyone. That's my hope, so maybe. I'm going to read the last part of the chapter 3 in my sixth novel, Human Acts. 눈송이들 암전 뒤 서서히 무대가 밝아진다. Snowflakes. After the set change, the lights come up again slowly. In the center of the stage stands a tall woman in her 30s, her white hemp skirt recalling the kind of homespun item worn by mourners. When she silently turns to face the left hand of the stage, this appears to be the cue for a tall, slim man dressed in black to emerge from the wings. He comes walking towards her, carrying a life-sized skeleton on his back. His bare feet tread the boards with carefully measured steps, as though he fears he might slip in the empty air. The woman now turns to the right, still silent as a marionette. This time the man who steps out from the wings is short and stocky. Though in his black clothes and the skeleton on his back, He's identical to the first. The two men glide towards each other from their opposite sides, like images from some old-fashioned film, proceeding in slow motion as their projectionist laboriously cranks the handle. They reach the center of the stage at the same time, but they do not pause. Instead, they simply carry on to the other side, as though forbidden to acknowledge the other's presence. There isn't a single empty seat in the house. The front rows look to be mainly made up of actors and journalists, perhaps because this is the opening night. When Yun Suk and the boss had been making their way to their seats and she had glanced to the back of the auditorium, four men in particular had caught her eye. 
though they were interspersed among the rest of the audience, she had been in little doubt that they were plain-clothed policemen. What's Mr. Say gonna do? she had thought. When those men hear the lines that the censor scored when those men hear the lines that the censors score through coming out of the mouths of these actors, will they jump up from their seats and rush onto the stage? That chair whirling through the air above the table in the university canteen, the spurts of blood from the boy's forehead, the cooling plate of curry. What would happen to the production crew watching the scene unfold from the lightning box? Would Mr. Seo be arrested? Would he escape only to live a hunted existence, a fugitive whom even his own family would struggle to track down? Once the figures of the men have melted back into the wings, their steps sliding forward with a dreamlike lassitude, the woman begins to speak. Or so it seems. In actual fact, she cannot be said to say anything at all. Her lips move, but no sound comes out. Yet, Yun Suk knows exactly what she is saying. She recognizes the lines from the manuscript, where Mr. Seo had written them in with a pen. The manuscript she had typed up herself and proofread three times. After you died, I could not hold a funeral, and so my life became a funeral. The woman turns her back on the audience and the lights go up in the long aisle between the seats. Now a strapping man is standing at the end of the aisle, his clothes a tattered hemp. His breathing comes ragged as he walks towards the stage. Unlike the aloof impassive figures who glided across the stage mere moments ago, this man's face is contorted with feeling. He stretches both arms up above his head, straining for who knows what. His lips gupper like a fish on dry land. Again, Yun Suk can read what those lips are saying, though speech is an uncertain name for the high-pitched sound shrieking out from between them. Oh, return to me. Oh, return to me when I call your name. Do not delay any longer. Return to me now. After the initial wave of perplexity has swept through the audience, they subside into cowed silence and gaze with great concentration at the actor's lips. The lighting in the aisle begins to dim. The woman on stage turns back to face the audience. Silent as ever, she calmly watches the man walking down the aisle, invoking the spirits of the dead. After you died, I couldn't hold a funeral. So these eyes that once beheld you became a shrine. These ears that once heard your voice became a shrine. These lungs that once inhaled your breath became a shrine. Eyes wide open yet seeming not to see the waking world, shrieking up into the empty air while the woman merely moves her lips. The man in hemp mounts the stairs to the stage. His upraised arms swing down, grazing her shoulder as though brushing away snow. The flowers that bloom in spring, the willows, the raindrops and snowflakes became shrines. The mornings ushering in each day 
the evenings that daily darken became shrines. Hong Kong visited the Louisiana Museum in 2019, where she was interviewed by Christian Lund, who also produced and edited the interview. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk. Or you can find them on YouTube. I'm Pike Melinowski. Thanks for listening.